Welcome to the Mind Meets Body podcast, a space dedicated to real health conversations with a dose of self-compassion, curiosity, and imperfection. Join me, Maria Sosa of Holistically Grace, as we take a deep dive into redefining and exploring health through the mind and body. On today's episode, we have Sirut Chawla, a London-based, trauma-informed, integrative psychotherapist. She focuses on solution-focused short-term and long-term work and also survivors of trauma. Welcome to the show, Sirut. Thank you so much, Maria. I'm so happy to be on and really excited for this new project that you've started. Thank you. So glad that you're going to be a part of it. So you're based out of London. Were you born in London? Nope. I am Indian. I was born in New Delhi, India. And that is where I grew up. My mom is from England, so we kind of spent a lot of the year here as well, every every single holidays. So yeah, I'm, I'm lucky to have sort of two cultures to draw from. Yeah, I love that. And in terms of the culture, what would you say are some differences between the English and the Indian culture? I know that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very broad question, but I think... So speaking from the eye, I think what um, drew me to England as opposed to staying in India was um, I don't subscribe to um, assigned gender roles. And I knew there was a, a not less, I mean, our generation is really, really different. India is idealistic, rebellious, um, incredible, incredible minds. But there is there is a role women have to kind of live by, especially in sense of personal safety and that's not something that I was willing to live like or um, allow myself to kind of navigate the world with a big sense of fear I wasn't willing to carry on living that way so um, one one thing is that um, is that in in the UK there's less sort of fear about harm coming to me that's kind of a big one. And would you say um, harm as a woman in terms of... Harm as a woman. Mm-hmm. Harm as a woman. I'm sure most of the world is aware of this. There's a big rape crisis in India. And um, I think from my own cultural trauma, being sort of sexualized at a very, very young age, being gopped at, leered at, sometimes worse by adult men, even as a child, it's something that I'm incredibly sensitive to still. So unwanted attention is something that I find really distressing sometimes. So um, that was a big, big reason. The other thing is that enmeshment, um, I wasn't willing to be enmeshed any further. I didn't know that was the name. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that I felt there, there were so, so many strings attached to every single part of my life. And coming here felt like um, a breath of fresh air and freedom. And I think culturally, India can be very, very enmeshed, and the UK can be very, very disengaged. So that's an interesting um, sort of very broad, very broad cultural difference. Perfect. I think you brought up some amazing points in terms of that disengaged and enmeshment. And where do you find yourself in the middle of these two cultures? I'm shooting for interdependence, <laughs> working on it every day. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you fall both sides of the diagram, don't you? Having grown up in a very enmeshed family, in a super enmeshed culture, where you're taught that self-betrayal and martyrdom is what makes you a nice person mm-hmm. and what makes you um, worthy, what makes you good. So um, th- that conditioning is hard to unlearn and it does still come up. And I think something I'm grateful for is you know having a reflective practice for so many years that you're, you're, I'm able to see it and I'm able to okay I'm not going to self-betray in this instance that's what's coming up for me mm-hmm. or um, I feel very very concerned that I'm perceived as a nice person sometimes and um, just really sitting with the fact that it's okay if they don't think I'm a nice person I'm acting from my own values and ethics and what does nice really mean you know nice isn't um it it, it sort of it isn't a quality you can really unpack it's really just pleasantness and palatability and what was that like for your family when you decided to kind of you know take 
things a different route i think it it's been it's been a growing experience for everyone so i grew up very very sheltered um in some ways which you know was necessary considering the the climate in terms of you know it's it's not like the west where you can let your kids go playing on their bikes and doing those kinds of things and um so my parents were very very involved even way past an appropriate age so me leaving was massive and it it took a lot of um a lot of fights a lot of convincing um yeah even at the age of 21 it wasn't it wasn't my solo decision i had to make them get on board and that really kind of comes back to why i needed to leave because I don't think as a 21 year old especially needs to be accountable to other other adults. I understand what you mean. I'm originally from Venezuela, um which I can't equate it to, you know, being from India, but there is this whole family comes first. Mm, yeah. And family is very important and it's important to play your family role as a daughter it's important to mm. show respect to your parents it's important to show respect to your elders and i know that this sounds very you know general but it's to a different degree it's very much to this degree of shame if you don't adhere to these standards that we have for you and if you decide to kind of take a step back from your family then it is very much a betrayal right yes betraying your family or betraying the way that we do things and it's not received very well so i'm guessing that it's something along those lines but obviously not the same thing i think um i think that's a brilliant description i think um and and that's sort of what enmeshment is as soon as you take step towards steps towards interdependence um the rest of the family unit will look at it as betrayal um especially if you have colluded with that dynamic maybe as a survival pattern and you've self-betrayed um because a part of you wants to meet that need of, of belonging and being part of something and sort of colluding with your own and their codependency so um there there was a lot of unlearning to do and yeah even even now if um if there's an expectation on my time or an expectation of certain kinds of behavior and I set a boundary um it's it's not always well received but i would say that everyone has grown yeah that's a nice way to put it which is that your experiences and the way that you were raised and all this self discovery led you to seek a path in therapy i think what led me here was um i was actually doing office temping in my late 20s and um because they just I, i don't know i i noticed there was um an evening counseling course at a local college and i thought i'll do that i don't have you know so much on my plate right now and i fell in love with it so i ended up doing um i think it was three courses in 18 months um i just i like just ripped right through them so um i i kind of had to jump from college to college to catch the different dates so that i could just do them one after the other um and then get on the um get to university and really i think what a, a big motivator was um trying to figure out what was going on for me because i knew i wasn't like everybody else i knew i didn't feel okay um i didn't feel i fit it, i fit in and i knew that i was carrying a lot of pain what i didn't know was that these what what i know now which is that i was traumatized so i think it went in really hoping that this would shed some light and i would know what to do with myself um and university was such an interesting experience because with everything you have with your clinical hours your personal therapy academic work um research everything you you almost get completely taken apart and put back together in, in a new reconfiguration um i think that's what the kind of sets psych- psychotherapeutic training apart from other training it, it, it's training on you as a person it's not just taking in knowledge and um and i think somewhere along the way i became a therapist but i didn't start out with that motivation 
When you work with trauma, mm-hmm. how do you start to even understand a person's trauma? I know that as you were speaking about yourself, you were, it was kind of multi-layered, right? So it was on an individual level with your family. It was at a cultural level. It was, there's so many facets to it. So how would you start working through that with somebody? I think um, the first thing is you respect their agency and what they want to present. I'm very, very instinctive. So I don't really know how to put that into words, but um, I, I think I work quite instinctively. And whether that's just an amalgam of all the knowledge and the experience that's kind of in my head and it's driving what I do, and I might not be sure how to express that, but that's kind of how I'd, that's how I'd conceptualize it as instinctive. And um, you start with anybody you start to work with is provide safety just complete safety and unconditional positive regard so that um because i think really it doesn't matter so much what the modality is it's the safe bond between the therapist and client because most people especially people who've been through trauma have never experienced attunement they've never experienced a secure bond um they've never experienced just approval positive regard um boundaries just creating that container with with those kinds of facets of the therapeutic frame alone are so powerfully healing so i think that's where you start when you start talking about that person's attachment can you tell me a little bit about what that entails about attachment styles Mm -hmm. so i mean it depends how it comes up in the work um, if, if it's quite apparent that someone is a particular attachment style quite quickly, I might do some psychoeducation with them and explain what attachment styles are. I usually recommend that they read the Amir Levine book, mm-hmm. which is a, a brilliant book that all clients come away saying, this is crazy, this is me. Um, and um, if, if that's not the case, if it's sort of relationship work, then yes, you kind of psychoeducate about attachment styles very, very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want me to explain what attachment styles are? Yeah, I'd love you to explain. Um, so our attachment styles, essentially how we behave in close, inter, inter, intimate or interpersonal relationships. Um, so specifically those with a high emotional charge, like your romantic relationship, very, very close friendships. <laughs> And you can kind of think of it as a relationship blueprint that gets formed. Um, So the early literature all talks about the mother-child bond. I think we now um, know that it's not just the mother that's the primary caregiver, so the infant caregiver bond. And um, how responsive and how attuned the caregiver is to the infant um, depends how they learn to be in relationships. So if a mother or um, just just for just for the ease of speaking, I'm going to use the term mother. So if the mom is um, notices when the baby cries and most of the time she meets the baby's needs of feeding it, cuddling it, you know, being attuned, being present, being a secure base, that child will grow up and be securely attached and be comfortable with intimacy, comfortable with giving and receiving love, with asking for help, with being interdependent. Um, If those needs are met very intermittently, so sometimes the needs are met and sometimes the needs are, um, well, they're just not met, whether it's because the caregiver can't anticipate what those needs are. So sometimes a child might um, just need a breather, might need a quiet moment, and the mom is tightly cuddling the child. That's not meeting the need. Um, And then you'd end up with anxious attachment, where you're very, very preoccupied with um, the other person. You're thinking about, what might they be thinking about me? Have I done something wrong? You need a lot of reassurance. You can be very, very clingy. And then you have fearful avoidant or disorganized, which is usually the product of, well, abuse. So mental, physical, emotional, sexual, any kind of abuse you um, develop this attachment style where you long for connection, but um, it's too frightening. So you get close, you get away, you get, so it's very much a little bit of a dance. That's, I, I would say that's sort of my, that's my natural attachment style would be 
fearful avoidant or otherwise called disorganized. And then you have dismissive avoidance, which is very, very sadly been vilified, I think. Um, and I think it's important that we don't and that we understand where it comes from, which is someone being um, just severely neglected. So an infant, an infant can't regulate its own nervous system. It needs the mother's nervous system with it to co-regulate. And that's how you learn how to self-regulate. So the dismissive avoidant usually becomes an auto-regulator. So regulates within themselves and in vacuum, it's just me. And, um, and they learned really early on that other people just cannot be relied on. It's just me. I have to look after me. And so they keep, keep some walls up, keep defenses up to stay safe. Um, and I think where they're vilified and mislabeled as narcissists is because they can't cope with um, intimacy. They can be very projecting, very blaming, um, critical sometimes. And it's really just layer upon layer of defenses. I wonder if that as a whole is vilified as, I mean, not the narcissist part of it, but this whole, I can only trust myself. I only have um, myself to blame for the things that happened to me, 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 right? So we kind of hear that a lot in our culture as all the things that I do are up to me. My successes are up to me. My failures are also up to me. So I know that that's not exactly attachment style, but as a whole, it feels like it's something that is kind of like a badge of honor to do things on your own to be independent and not have to depend on anybody right i think i'd see that as um a little bit of a double-edged sword because on one hand i'm a really really strong proponent of taking radical accountability for yourself um it's not anyone else's responsibility to meet your needs or um to kind of facilitate facilitate whatever your emotional stuff is I think that's on us and um, success comes from deciding what you want and then putting in a fuck ton of work, <laughs> you know, working and working and working and working and you do that by yourself. Nobody owes you anything. So um, I think, I think that's really, really important because I find unfortunately there's, there's a narrative of, well, if I really want it, I should have it but that's not how the world works. Whereas dismissive avoidance, I think, is not so much about radical accountability, but um, radical avoidance. You know, I'm not gonna let anybody close to me because you'll hurt me. And it's not so much about my successes and my, it's just, you aren't reliable, you'll never be reliable. Intimacy feels scary, so I'm gonna push you away. And if I push you in a way that's really, really hurtful, you might stay at that distance. And I think that's what drives that behavior. So it's fear-based, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah, and a lot of dismissive avoidance can be exceptionally controlling, especially in intimate relationships, and that's to make themselves feel safe, because they don't feel safe, so they're domineering and dominant. Right, and I do think that, and this is something that I've just noticed recently, because, again, social media, this whole trend of highlighting narcissism and kind of like the narcissist and kind of dating a narcissist and being in a relationship with a narcissist. And I've never really been attuned to, you know, there's so much information on this. And I really love how you talked about kind of like understanding where that narcissist personality stems from. Well, I think, unfortunately, narcissist has become the buzzword of the day. Um, I'm very, very deeply uncomfortable with the amount of stuff out there about um, just narcissism, surviving narcissistic relationships, because so many people are mislabeled. Just somebody behaving badly um, or being dismissive, avoidant doesn't make them a narcissist. I think if you like the golden rule in in therapy if you haven't assessed someone you can't diagnose them um so you can't diagnose your intimate partner you know and and especially not if you're not qualified to um and we're vilifying we're vilifying people we're creating lines in the sand of you're the narcissist and the terrible person and i'm this um innocent empath which again i think is another buzzword of the day everybody's now an empath 
and you know yeah maybe there's such a thing as an empath which is a sensitive person who has um you know very high neuron activity and um you know is able able to kind of sense what goes on for other people but we're kind of ignoring the fact that a lot of people have those abilities because they've been through trauma or they've been had um survival patterns where they learned to attune to the people around them so that they could stay safe they learned that if i can predict your needs accurately and i can predict your moods and your mood shifts accurately i i i might be safer than if i can't and then you reenact those dynamics in an adult relationship so i think the reason why all the work has to start with us is because we have to deal with our own stuff before we start pointing fingers outwards and calling everyone a narcissist you know what's going on for me what kind of choices am i making and that that's not to be conflated with abuse because if you look at the comments on that post of mine people are not happy not happy at all which which um, post <laughs> um uh the post i did about the narcissist and the empathing that people just are talking about really really a lot mm-hmm. and um essentially just just taking the narcissist and empath label out of it and looking at what else might be going on mm-hmm. um because then there are not that many narcissists walking around the world and this is a very very serious personality disorder I am so with you and that's what I mean I said I never heard so much information on this and I have a client who was going through a very terrible relationship and it wasn't a good relationship there was a lot of terrible things that were going on and she got this idea or you know again social media narcissist personality and so she was able to kind of fit the person that she was dating into this box right and then she would bring memes or things regarding to the narcissist personality to our sessions and would talk about like see he's a narcissist and see this is how it's going and i would say one i'm not going to be able to diagnose this person that i don't know so we're not going to talk about it in that way but regardless of whatever label we give it it wasn't a good relationship can we talk about the relationship can we talk about how you guys were relating to each other mm-hmm. when you were as a person that wasn't ready for this kind of relationship either um and kind of breaking it down from that perspective rather than having it so neatly placed in a little box of I'm an empath and you're a narcissist right absolutely and i think what what that really what really strikes me about that is that by focusing on this um ex-boyfriend who has been diagnosed a narcissist by your client it's a way for your client to avoid looking at her stuff you know what was going on for her and i think there's a lot of that going on um we all do it i do it you we sometimes avoid looking at the really painful vulnerable ugly stuff because it makes perfect sense not to who wants to run towards the ugly and the hurt and, and what it hurts but you have to do it you have to do it i think you call that your shadow self right yes the ugly stuff yeah. let's talk about that shadow self because it's not so I like to talk about it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, I'm completely obsessed with the shadow self. Um and it's from probably my favorite um uh, psychoanalyst of of that era Carl Jung. And uh, one of his quotes which we've probably seen everywhere on, on social media which is if until you make the conscious unconscious it'll appear in the world as an event and you will call it fate. and i think that's what shadow work is about so the shadow self is the part of us that's largely unconscious so it's all our old wounds where our reactivity lives um the stuff we don't remember from childhood but the body remembers that lives in your shadow self everything that you've um abdicated so in um internal family systems they call this the exiles um or Carl uh Carl Rogers would call it conditions of worth. So, you know, things like jealousy, we all get jealous and then we're we're on something like Instagram which creates really really great fertile conditions for jealousy to sprout unless you really actively work on it and pay attention to what's going on for you. Jealousy, rage, people that aren't out. That's another thing especially like somewhere like India where 
it's treated like it's something shameful instead of just you know who who cares who someone loves everyone should be happy it's ridiculous sorry I'm going off on a tangent um, it's a it's something that feels really important to me um so you know all, all the things that you want to pretend that you aren't or li- live in your shadow self um the things about you that are your blind spots that you don't know about they live in your shadow self um your wounding your attachment wounding that lives in your shadow self and unless you shed light on it and you actively go looking at it it's going to stay your shadow so i really believe in integration of the shadow and embracing the shadow because we're human beings we're never ever going to be perfect um and yeah sometimes um i i have you know whatever it looks like for you yeah i feel really jealous that this person has more followers than me and i'm going to sit with that for a moment and i'm going to say that makes me feel inadequate or it makes me um maybe there's a little bit of narcissism there when i'm th- where i'm thinking well my work's so fantastic why are more people looking at it and really looking at those parts of yourself that aren't pretty um and being real with yourself instead of instead of bypassing them and pretending that you're okay or pretending to live up to what an idea of a healthy person or a therapist is just be really really real and that is the basis of shadow work being unflinchingly honest with yourself what if we get too much into our shadow self what if now we've decided that shadow self is the only self and now we are these worthless individuals and kind of like imposter syndrome kind of like leaks in you know is that is that something that happens sometimes that's a really really interesting question and um you see that kind of thing in people that um whose trauma manifests as depression mm-hmm. where they feel very very worthless um they feel that there's no meaning to life and um they have nothing to offer they feel like a fraud so that that's very much like when we were talking earlier about the polyvagal ladder that's your hypo arousal um i think if you're actually doing shadow work and you're going in to do the shadow work i don't i don't i can't really see that happening i mean there's no reason why is not to say it's impossible but um you have to start somewhere and if that's where you are where you feel like you're worthless start there i love that that's definitely meeting yourself where you're at that's so powerful you mentioned the polyvagal ladder could you tell me a little mm. bit about that yeah so in traditional biology um the nervous system is two antagonistic branches meaning they work against each other so your sympathetic and your parasympathetic so fight flight would be um your sympathetic and your parasympathetic is like um digest rest and digest response and then polyvagal theory you have um imagine a ladder and the bottom of the ladder is hypo arousal so under aroused or under activated and that's where you'd see dsm disorders like depression the lower end of bipolar dissociative disorders um and then you have a sort of mobilization or the sympathetic nervous system which is the middle of the ladder um which you would look at as sort of overactivated so anxiety panic the higher end of bipolar um and um oh yeah coming back to the lower end you, that's where you'd also find the freeze response as one of the tro- other um nervous system responses and then the top of the ladder which is um ventral vagal is sort of the holy grail of the polyvagal um theory which is your social engaged happy friendly positive part of you or regulated so um the idea is that you you sort of climb the ladder as you regulate yourself and that's not to say that you won't end up in different parts of the ladder when triggered or something unpleasant happens but um that's sort of how it's conceptualized under po- under polyvagal theory it's so interesting that mm. kind of like relating these disorders to something biology based i mean i mean we obviously you know think about it that way but kind of like through the nervous system i think it's not something that we talk about very often um yeah and we're talking about it more and more which i think is really important because when you operate from the diseased model the disease diseased model the disease <laughs> model then um 
you're looking at people as broken or unwell and you're looking at them as you are depressed you will always be depressed and the treatment for this is medication and yeah therapy if you want therapy um when you look at it in terms of nervous system adaptations you realize that um no one is broken and people adapt based on what they've been through their nervous system adapts their biology changes their biochemistry changes and i think it's a reasonable extrapolation that if it changed once we can help change it back to what it's meant to be help bring you back to back to a regulated state and i far prefer that framework than the traditional one that we studied which um which which can be so shaming and and it can make people with any kinds of mental illness feel like the other and feel like they have to be in some sort of a closet and and not not be honest about the fact that actually I'm distressed a lot of the time. I'm really struggling with my life, but I have to fake being okay because I can't have anyone know. I can't have my colleagues know that I'm struggling with this. Insert the label. Yeah, I had a client that I, you know, spoke about. He had what is diagnosable as bipolar disorder, and it was one of those things at work that was very, very tough for him because he felt that it was something he couldn't share with anybody, something that he couldn't make a part of his worth life because he's supposed to be this on top of everything. He's not supposed to be going through these cycles or it's not supposed to be depression because you're supposed to perform. And I think that that, that workplace environment is so key in kind of understanding, you know, kind of like how much we push away these disorders and how much we kind of say this is shameful so don't show that up here this is a workplace this is what you're supposed to be doing and your person yourself doesn't belong here you're just supposed to be here for work right i'm so glad you're you are talking about it in that way because the workplace is really underestimated as a big precipitating factor for um mental illness if you spend time in a hostile work work environment you're be- going to become stressed and and mentally unwell or f- mentally and physically unwell i don't i don't like to distinguish between the two because the brain doesn't exist in a vacuum um and we mustn't treat it in isolation um if if you're in a work environment where you have to pretend to be okay and um really not not even sort of show your vulnerable parts because you're fe- like in fear of of being found out or um ostracized or stigmatized or that you might lose your job or people make sort of assumptions about you how much energy are we are we kind of spending on that you know workplaces really need to um create an environment where people feel safe if people feel safe think think about how that will impact productivity how that will impact workplace relationships and we spend so much more time working and at work and with colleagues than we do even in our own houses with um our own people let's say right it's it's so true the percentage of time we spend there yeah huge and yet we're expected not to be human in the work yeah kind of like remove the human aspect of it all and how can we spend such a large percentage of our lives not being human and not being ourselves i think it's very contradictory well it's like um professionalism professionalism is abdicate your humanness and behave like this perfect robot um and you know use these certain types of words be extra formal and very very stiff and proper and it's so weird <laughs> if that's not who you actually are why why can't people show up as themselves yes yes appropriately yes in a in a sensible boundaried way but show up as who you authentically are it's important it is i have a personal story to share i was at my internship i think this was right after my masters or during my masters right my internship and i had a very very tough conversation with my mom on my way to the internship um i was very flustered i was very upset and when i got to work i think my supervisor had said something to me 
that I took in a very different way than she was probably saying it, or I was very upset. And I started crying, just crying in front of her and being, you know, very emotionally, quote unquote, unstable. And she said to me, and I don't know if I'll ever forget this, and I think it it just brought it up, but it was, you're at work. You're not expected to act this way, or there's a way that you're supposed to act. And I just thought, wow, okay, yes and no. You know, in a way that, like, I understand that this is uncomfortable for you, but I, this is what's going on with me, and it's obviously going to affect how I show up as a therapist. It's going to show up how I show up in the relationship that I'm having with you. How could I possibly kind of hide or not be that person that I am at this moment? That's that's really sad and disappointing to hear that that came from a supervisor. Mm-hmm. Really, really disappointing. And looking back on it now, it kind of makes me think, what makes you uncomfortable about my emotionality? What makes you uncomfortable about the fact that I'm being human? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And then how, I wonder how that would show up with her clients. Yeah. Yeah, that's the epitome of that very very unhelpful way of thinking about how to be in the workplace right and that kind of takes me into the segue of we've been talking a lot about trauma but stress and how much stress we get from our jobs how much stress we carry from our relationships and kind of we don't see stress and trauma on the same level but they kind of are right um, you beautifully called it a continuum continuum earlier when we were talking about it, and I think that's a that's a great way to conceptualize it. Um, I think how I'd disambiguate the two would be: trauma is anything that overloaded your capacity to cope at the time. So think of it as too much electricity going into a circuit board. You couldn't cope. Certain parts of your brain and your body shut down. Certain parts got overactivated, and then they get stuck in that um, in that place stress may not overload your capacity to cope but it's pushing on it and that's why you're becoming very very stressed um, what's happening biochemically even if it's happening on a short term is very very sim- similar to what happens during trauma you're releasing chemicals to activate you cortisol adrenaline norepinephrine to kind of put you into that fight flight state so that's why you get anxiety and you tremble and your belly gets upset and um, you know you feel tense you feel like there's a vice around the heart muscles ache people don't sleep so you know this is this is so serious and so important and we have to start looking at stress as um, stress is a killer because if it goes on long enough it's going to make you very very sick Um, physically mentally autoimmune gut health sleep everything is impacted so um, stress is something to be taken really really seriously it's not um, a badge of honor to bear your stress that's actually just not a very sensible thing to do I love that because our culture thrives on that stress. The more stressed that you are, it means that you are high achieving. It means that you are being productive. It means that you're being busy and that that we should applaud you for that stress that you're having. And then it's normalized as well. Oh, that's just normal. That's part of what comes along with being in this um, part of your life or that that's, you know, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be stressed, right? I think that that's the normal connotation of stress. And what a load of crap, <laughs> really. <Yeah. laughs> this is such a load of crap. Uh, because again, so many of these things that we blindly follow, um, me included, um, they're made up by people that are just no smarter than we than we are. And um, we follow these sort of ideas and everyone, well, everyone else is doing it, I should probably do it. And then it just becomes this, this um, accepted cultural way of behaving or, or social way of behaving. And there's a big difference between good stress and bad stress. And they're um, sort of perceived very differently by your body and by your brain. So taking positive steps, pushing yourself out of the comfort zone towards growth has um, an amazing impact. Your, it's dopamine, endorphins. Um, you're regulating your nervous system. 
that's great you know work hard um but balance the that hard work with restoring what you've depleted you know look after yourself it's not let me walk around sticks in not sleeping popping like antacids all day that's not a good place to be you're going to get super super ill um and you're not going to enjoy the fruits of your hard work versus yeah i i push myself i like to work hard but i'm also quite intuitive in listening to my body and um if i need rest or rest it's it's really that simple it's not that it's not complicated it's not something i have to um think about and and um i think earlier on in my life i probably would go into a real thought spiral of guilt and difficulty and in a conflict of um i shouldn't be resting i should be doing something i should be filling this time um i'm not worthy if i'm not constantly you know producing and doing something productive but um rest is productive and then you go away and have a little rest and you come back with fresh eyes and hit the ground running and produce far a better quality of work but you know it's also about being the, the good stress side is being really accountable to yourself and deciding what you're going to do and following through for yourself and then that's how you build self trust that's how you build build credibility with yourself and you widen your window of tolerance so the same amount of load doesn't create that bad stress how often do we feel though that rest is laziness I think that's that's the the trope right now that's what people think so that um if I'm going to spend this weekend lying in bed um eating halo top then <laughs> then you know you've wasted your whole weekend and you should have been out I don't know watching Cirque du Soleil and I don't know drinking out of a mason jar some kind of fancy cocktail and like that's that's a waste of a weekend if you Those are the it. best kind of cocktail <laughs> and um you know you have to listen to yourself and it's about like really starting to trust your judgment because nobody knows you better than you no one and um you're not lazy you know you know the work you put in you know um the effort you put into your life you know what your intentions are you know how much you follow through and feed your drive and you have to rest because you're organic matter you're not a machine you're not a robot or an, an android who can sort of be and even even a machine needs to be serviced so you know it, it you have to like i i think of it as um the whole day as i i kind of work in chunks so i have adhd i get hyper focused so um i and i also know that my brain doesn't properly turn on till about midday um so i go i i instead of beating myself up like i have when i was um or i have before which is i can't do the organizational stuff well and i have a hard time regulating my focus leverage what your strengths are and balance it with self care that's really my sort of like work day recipe so i know that i'm going to um my brain will become alert and ready to work around midday so that's when i do um all the flow work and really get into it and um when i've done that i usually set an alarm because the hyper focus can carry on for hours and hours and i might not sort of know when to stop myself and pull back um and then i will force myself to to not even force myself it's quite natural now but to do something caring so whether it's to get like my favorite kind of coffee and watch a 20 minute episode of something that i think is funny um i think that's great and then i have my 20 minute break or whatever it is and then i get back into it so you're constantly balancing it you're constantly releasing that pressure valve and whether it's going for a walk outside in the sunshine or um reading something talking to a friend whatever that means to you that little sort of balancing the action with the self care i think it's key it's really key to not getting burnt out especially when like us we're doing multi- you're doing a podcast you have the instagram account which i think as we both know instagram is a beast and <laughs> requires a lot of work and then you're seeing clients you have a lot on your plate so you got to balance it which i'm sure you do already 
feel like we're having a therapy session right now. I'm just listening to all the things you're saying. And like, um, and I'm sitting here like, yes, yes, I am doing a lot. Yes, I do need a rest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. You segued right into my next question about self-care. Um, you did that so beautifully in terms of all the little things that you do for yourself and kind of showing yourself kindness and understanding just even my brain doesn't fully turn on until midday. So how is my natural state? I'm not going to fight it. How am I going to work with it? Right. Absolutely. Because, you know, neurodivergence isn't a deficit. It's just a different operating system. So, um, and it's got its own strengths. So leverage those, um, take the shame out of it, which is very easy for me to say in a few words. It takes actually a, a shit ton of work and daily practice and constantly talking to yourself, reasoning yourself out of it. But, you know, self-care is, um, there's the in self-indulgent side of self-care, which is buying the nice coffees and um, having bubble baths, which is, I think, everyone's favorite self-care go-to thing to say. I can't um, do I, bubble baths. It's way I too hate hot. baths. Thank you. Oh, I hate them. You know, you're, <laughs> like, you're, you're sitting there and you're stewing in your own filth. And then, like, after about three or four minutes, you're sitting there, like, roasting hot, sweating, sitting in the tub. And you're just like, and now what? And I'm so clumsy, so I can't even hold my phone and look at it because it'll end up in the bath motor. So, yeah, baths are not for me. I love it. I love that you're sharing that because it definitely <laughs> idea that everybody loves bubble baths it's way too hot no. and for me to have a bubble bath it is it's not enjoyable it's just not something that's gonna happen so my it's not enjoyable it's torture <laughs> it's absolute torture torture yeah and could you imagine somebody not knowing your self-care is personalized and kind of sticking to these ideas of self-care of, well, self-care is a bubble bath and I'm supposed to be enjoying this. I'm going to sit and I'm going to stew and I'm going to be hot. And I'm, I might drop my phone in there as well. <laughs> and just kind of saying, well, I'm not doing self-care right. You know, could you imagine that happening? I hope that doesn't happen. And I hope that we're not so prescriptive and um, we don't put our messages out in such a way that I really hope no one thinks that because I would I hate the thought of somebody who desperately needs to, to give themselves some care, torture themselves in a, um, in a horrible bath. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, um, I know some people love them, so yeah, sorry people who love baths, we, we just don't. Um, we just, it's okay, you can like them, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. Don't DM us, thank you. <laughs> Bad baths. Um, yeah, I think self-care is absolutely personalized, and it's essentially the the a very basic way of explaining self-care is paying attention to what you need and then meeting that need. I need a minute of quiet. Okay, get some quiet. Um, does meditation help me recenter? Meditate. Okay, am I on um, a certain sort of a pharmaceutical protocol? Am I taking my meds at the right time? Um, what food does my body work best on? Figure that out and eat that food. You know, don't don't eat anything that that's like putting sand in the gas tank because we we do that and we get sick and then. Um, yeah, which is really important. Self-advocacy is self-care. Um, taking up space in the world is self-care. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's more nuanced. Um, having sort of a break from some people go no contact with their families, that's self-care. Um, whatever it is, some people move back home with their parents because they need that connection, that's self-care. There's no right, there's just right for you. It's whatever you need at that moment. And I'm wondering yeah. how we can incorporate kind of what we've talked about early in terms of the nervous system. How can we show our nervous system some self-care? So there's something called vagal tone, um, which is essentially what the polyvagal um, ladder is talking about. So activating your um, 
well, kind of creating good vagal tone, you do things like cold showers, <laughs> humming, laughing, singing. All these things seem to seem to um, stimulate the vagus nerve in a really, really positive way. The thing that personally has worked for me, um, and I use in my work a lot, is taking um, baby steps out of, out of your comfort zone. So um, for me, getting on Instagram was a nervous system regulation act because even on my um, you know sort of personal social media, I never really posted anything personal. I stay. I was like that Heidi creepy person that just watched every, everything everyone else was doing and didn't share much of, <laughs> much of myself because I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to be seen because being seen meant being judged and being judged meant um, disapproval or it meant maybe someone would look at me and think, you know, even being seen in a positive way was very, very frightening because I was scared of um, being targeted in some way. And these all come back to childhood patterns, um, unconscious programming. So getting on Instagram and being seen, let alone being on, you know, now on, on your podcast and um, appearing in videos and stories sometimes, and <laughs> it's, it, it is nervous system regulation. It's practicing what is scary consistently. Um, so it's doing it every day. And um, there was a time where I literally only took Ubers because public transport was too frightening for me. Um, I was so dysregulated that that extra, extra stimulation plus the ADHD where you can't tune out those distractions, it was too much. It was, it was panic inducing. And um, I used to just take short bus rides every single day. And I used to be terrified, panicking, hate every second of it. Every single step to the bus stop felt like my legs were made of lead. And I did it anyway. I did it every day and I showed up for myself. And um, that does not activate my nervous system anymore. I love that. I have a very weird thing that I might have to work on. I do not like making phone calls. There's something about phone calls that are very stress-inducing for me and very triggering, and Mm -hmm. I always get very stressed out. And I'm wondering if I just need to start making phone calls and kind of activating so that in the future it is deactivated. Does that make sense? It really does. So even if it's um, something really small, like, um, so if you're a client and this was something that was really scary for you, I'd say phone the talking clock. Phone that first. No one's going to talk back at you and just do it. So you've made the call. Um, or instead of ordering through an app, order some order food by ringing the company. Um, just one thing every day. Even if you just pick up the phone and you dial the number, which in now in our phones, nobody dials any number, but you just you select the name from the contacts menu and you press it and it rings and you hang up, you still did part of the action. You still started it. But for me, um, nothing works unless you do. So you have to do it every single day, every single day. And how important it is to be consistent with that, because it is kind of like creating a new wiring for your brain. It's we've done absolutely forever, and now we're trying to do things differently. And our brain really loves to kind of follow the path it has forever and creating a new path is very very difficult very difficult i mean it feels like absolute freaking torture it really does and you know let's not gloss over that and make it into some pretty pleasant thing because it's not um but it's so worth it it's so worth not living your life in fear it's so worth feeling that yeah i I feel safe normal present in the world that's an amazing feeling and so many people who have been through trauma just have never ever felt that way and trauma so misunderstood every single person on this planet has had some kind of trauma um yeah that's a great point because we only think of trauma as shock trauma. So like the big traumas and we literally invalidate all the little kind of traumas that have an impact on us. Right. So you think I've never had trauma. And I think this is something that I had said to myself up until recently when I started learning about trauma, I'm not traumatized. Nothing bad has happened to me. Nothing um, that can hurt me or that can be classified as that. And as I started learning about it, I'm like, oh, well, yes, yes, I have. Yeah. You know, even um, 
There was a client I worked with recently who insisted, I'm just depressed and I there's no reason for me to be depressed. It's just my um, uh, neurochemical imbalance. And when we kind of got into the work, it was enmeshment trauma. And when he kind of understood what enmeshment was, it gave him a framework for what um, what his experience had been. And that was game-changing for him. And, you know, I don't like the, the attitude of comparing suffering. Suffering is suffering. People have different extremes of experience. There's, there's really absolutely no value in comparing them um, and making somebody feel like they don't have enough to be um, in pain about, I think. I think that's really not a nice or helpful attitude. And, you know, whether you went through a massive shock trauma or you grew up getting like 100 paper cuts every day, both are going to have a pretty serious impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And death by a thousand paper cuts. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. I think somebody made a comment on one of the posts that I had made recently about trauma not being an event but being a wound and that to me was just like wow we, we yeah. definitely think about it as a thing that happened to you as an event as opposed to this is how it hurt or this is what needs to be healed this is a wound that yeah. was over you know yeah and sadly some people especially the, the people i work with or e- even me who have complex trauma there's a lot of wounds there And just because there wasn't, um, you know, for some people, one massive traumatic event doesn't make it any less insidiously painful. And um, I like that. I like that conceptualization of it's a wound. Mm -hmm. That's that's the part of you that's that's hurting and that needs the love and care and nourishment Mm -hmm. and the healing. And and it's not just, um, you know, the love and the care. It's the cleaning the wound every day, putting on a new dressing. The boring. That's yeah. powerful. Oh, I just had this vision of actually doing that for all of us, you know, kind of cleaning the wound and, and dressing it and taking care of it and being so. Yeah. So if you have people in your, you know, I talk about, and so many therapists talk about fiercely guarding your environment. So if, if you have a relationship with someone you really like, but they keep inadvertently pressing on your wound, you might want to rethink that one. You know, we we have these very absurd ideas of what loyalty is, um, which is really a form of enmeshment. If someone, you know, it's it's okay to release with compassion. It's okay to move forward, and as you heal, your environment will change drastically. And you might go through a period of okay, I'm a loner now because I don't have any friends left, <laughs> and that's okay. Again, that's self care. And how important is that environment to the healing? Because you may be doing all your work, right? So you're doing that. But people are coming in and literally just poking holes in your wounds, right? Mm-hmm. You're doing all the work, but everything else around you is triggering or hurting or continuing to reopen those wounds. Well, stepping away is absolutely not an option, which is what what my first um, impulse would be. If, if you're in an environment that's actively hurting you and keeping you in an active trauma state, that's not your environment you know the the work always starts with look within what can i do for me because our field of control is us it's not anybody else it's our action our thoughts what's going on for us doing our trauma work and if it's um you know sometimes people are in marriages where they trigger each other because um i think uh, dr nicole lapera said this and i i couldn't agree more when she said when she wrote it in a post i thought um oh my god yes <laughs> That is the truth that no one triggers you more than your intimate partner and it's true and um so it's about learning boundaries about moving forward together and if if the other person can't sort of meet all those needs and they might not be able to it might not be on purpose it doesn't have to be anybody's fault then it's it's okay to move forward and move on you know the, it also might be triggering because this is somebody that you love so kind yeah. of getting that comment that isn't always so positive or kind of being challenged in the way that you're doing things or that criticism, whether it be constructive or not, coming from somebody that you love is very difficult. Absolutely, because the emotional charge is huge. It's so high. 
they're they're um they're the person that you feel most seen by or you want to be most seen by and most understood by the person that you sort of that's your person right mm-hmm. that's your teammate so when your teammate comes to you and says whatever it is that they've said um the emotional charge is is yeah it's exacerbated but every single trigger is a chance to look at the wound it's touched on because again um you, you can't police other people and i think that's something that's really important to remember you can't you can't make other people do anything you can just do your stuff you can express your truth and um if they can't meet you where you're going then sometimes you have to make a a a decision about that as well yeah that's a very difficult thing to hear as well kind of saying yes it's your responsibility to kind of essentially make those boundaries and and take things into consideration to take care of yourself would you say that in a way it kind of is this idea of being independent but also inter independent and kind of yeah getting that balance in between the two that yeah absolutely that is interdependence where i am responsible for myself and um really taking radical responsibility and accountability for your own needs your own life um kind of what you, what your um outward responsibilities are in the world what your career is um putting in um that nourishment into your relationship setting the boundaries knowing yourself and um it it is tough i do hear you i really do right because we want to be independent but we also want to be part of something bigger than ourselves right so that union yeah work, or we're in this want to keep you really want to keep those boundaries um clear i think that's where um the inter- so if if the boundaries are nice and clear and you come together occasionally support each other when both people are, are emotionally able to that's interdependence when that support is taken for granted and you have to support me because you're my partner that's enmeshment when it's well it's your problem uh, it's nothing to do with me that's disengagement so you're shooting for interdependence but if the, if if um you know you got into a relationship maybe before you started your healing journey or somewhere along it and you find yourself in maybe a little bit of a trauma bond sometimes it's it's really sad it's but it's a very very sad truth of life is that the other person might not want to be um uh, might not be as growth oriented as you might not be at the place you are now and i think sometimes we try to make things work that just aren't going to work and really really being honest with ourselves um that is self care too yeah that's so beautifully said so we talked so much today about healing and our nervous system and shadow work if somebody wanted to kind of get real with themselves and say all right i'm ready to start doing the work what would you say would be a good place to start observe yourself witness yourself without judgment so um i'm in the in the self healer circle which um i've been really enjoying and what's cool is that that's that's the first month is all about consciousness and that's something that i've used in my work as well always and it's some one of the first things i say to people probably in the first session because a lot of people seem to think that i'm going to give them tons of homework after therapy um and uh, my response is always well if you really must have homework <laughs> um just witness yourself without judgment um observe so take on just with curiosity just be the observer it's um think of it as uh gathering data and um w- when do i react what's happening in my body what kind of thoughts when do i get carried away in thinking when am i bleeding before i've been caught you know Oh, that one. Yeah, I feel that one. <laughs> yeah, me too. I do that to myself. Maybe we could talk about this forever, which makes me think that we just need to have a part 2 <laughs> in this yeah. conversation. But this has been so enlightening and so powerful and thank you so much for this chat and for grazing us with your presence and just oh. your goodness. I really appreciate you showing up the way that you do for your vulnerability, for sharing yourself as you 
are, that is so powerful. And I know that that is what we need more of in this world. Oh, I don't know what to say. That's so sweet. Thank you. It's so been um, an absolute privilege. And I've um, loved meeting you and talking to you. Same here. So where can we find you? Because I know that people are going to finish listening to this and they're going to want to <laughs> come listen to all the amazing things that you have to say. Where would be the best place for them to find um, you? So I'm on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and my account is Sirit K. Chawla, which I will spell because nobody knows those words it's um s for sugar e for echo e for echo r for romeo u for uniform t for tango k for kilo and then c h a w l a and my hashtag is in the trenches with you which might be an easier way to find me i'm building a website um i'm doing it pretty slowly when i when i can um get to it but that will be up soon and um i also have a linkedin and a facebook page of the same name perfect this has been so enlightening thank you so much i look forward to continuing our conversations and i really do think we just we need a we need a second podcast i'm just throwing that out there if you're ready for it (laughs) (laughs) we'll get to working on it Thank you for tuning in to the Mind Meets Body podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit the subscribe button below. If you're looking for more things Holistically Grace, check out my Instagram at Holistically Grace and my website, www.holisticallygrace.com. Please be mindful that the conversations found on the podcast are for educational purposes only. They're not meant to diagnose, treat, or replace the personalized care provided by a trained professional. In fact, it is my hope that these topics encourage you to reach out and seek help. No shame attached. Until next time, friends, stay compassionate.